Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Um, you know, when we talk about the person of Jesus, we're talking about a specific historical figure who walked, lived, breathed, ate, and died in what we now call the first century. It's an indisputable fact that he existed. It's an indisputable fact that he was uh, he, he, he was a real person because considering the varying levels of writing in antiquity, there's more corroborating evidence to support the existence of Jesus than there is most Roman emperors. Now, where Christians depart from just the simple historical figure uh, and the historical analysis of Jesus as the person it, are, are things like the claims that he was the son of God, claims that he rose from the grave, that he defeated sin and death, that he ascended to heaven and will one day return, because that's not something you would hear normally, especially of a Roman emperor. That he continues in ministry today as an eternal being and so forth. There's tons of claims where outside just the historicity of this person named Jesus, the Christian claims something supernatural. Those are indisputable facts, again, considering the corroborating evidence. Basic claims of Christianity are confirmed over and over again throughout Scripture and in the lives of Christians today. God works today in the hearts of sinful men, does he not? He saves people like me, undeserving sinners. By grace, through faith, he saves. He displays his glory and satisfies our aching souls every single day with glimpses of his, of his eternal worth. He brings people to conviction of sin and to, to repentance and exposes the sin even of people who we may think were untouchable in terms of their their good behavior. Things like that, again, prove who God is, what he says, how he's acted. But even before we get to our own experiential proofs, we have the promises of scripture of who Jesus was. We have to recognize that Jesus fulfilled countless statements in the Old Testament, statements about this promised redeemer or savior who, who had particular points in his life and ministry announced specifically over the course of centuries. They weren't written in later. They weren't editorial editions. They weren't, they weren't shoved in there just to make Jesus, the man Jesus fit a narrative. No, they were promised things. Little things about Jesus' life were promised centuries before he came. And you might sit here and wonder, you know, how many prophecies did Jesus really fulfill, right? You got, you got Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament. How many could one man really fulfill? Well, the whole Bible, we have to recognize, is a continued, uh, a continued revelation. It was a progressive revelation of, of Jesus' coming and reign, his redemption, his fulfillment. So there's types on every page of the Bible. If you were to go through the Bible, every single page would probably have three to four types that Jesus fulfilled. And considering my Bible, which is a large print Bible, has somewhere in the realm of 1,300 pages. If there's three to four per page, that's a lot. But what about specific prophecies? How many did Jesus fulfill? 
Well, I didn't count. No, I'm just kidding. I, uh, <laughs> I found a spreadsheet that had over 100. Some of them were repetitive. Some of them didn't really have Old Testament quotations as much. So we'll just say over 100 specific things about Jesus were promised centuries before he came. That's crazy. That is nuts. Things like his birthplace, things like his manner of birth, things like his, his miraculous healings and, and, and the way he acted, specifically promised. Today we're going to be meeting some men who saw that Jesus was the promised one, the king chosen since the beginning of time, the, 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 the anointed one. They're going to use a particular term of messianic hope. Now, if you've been in Christianity for too long, you've, you've heard that phrase, messianic or messiah. Or if you speak to somebody who has a Jewish background, it would be pronounced Mashiach, right? You've got to kind of clear your throat on that last, that last syllable there, but Mashiach. The messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed or promised one or chosen one. It was a title that became common looking back at the whole of Scripture and the promise of this one who was coming to redeem and fix what was ravaged by sin. And in fact, our very first announcement of this one is in Genesis 3. Now, if you know the Bible, that's the fall of man. In the midst of the fall, God makes this statement while he's condemning Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and Eve, the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's something specific that Jesus did. So let's, let's, let's go ahead and read our text for today. We're in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, verses 27 to 31, and let's see what this text shows about Jesus being the Messiah and about our lives as Christians and how we might actually learn to worship him better. So, starting in verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him uh, or came, came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, uh, be it done for you, or to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. This is the word of the Lord. So starting in verse 28, I'm sorry, this is driving me absolutely bonkers. I'm going to move this. It's going to make a noise. There we go. All right. <laughs> Every time I touch the pulpit, it's making a noise, and I can hear it. Uh, starting in verse 28, what's, what's going on here, right? Uh, you have two blind guys, two blind men who, who come to him. Uh, um, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean 20. I meant 27. Uh, so Jesus is, is leaving the scene that we had in the previous verses. He, these two blind men are following him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, let's establish the fact that it's two blind men that are able to follow Jesus. Somehow, they're chasing after him, and Jesus is walking away. 
They're, they're managing to follow him somehow. Maybe it's a crowd. Maybe it's a noise. Maybe people are telling him to go away, and, and these men are following. Somehow they're following after Jesus, and they're saying this particular phrase. They're saying, they're saying have mercy on us, son of David. Now, son of David was actually a messianic term. Now, David was, was the second king of Israel. He was uh, set up. His line was meant to usher in peace forever and ever. There's a promise through David that, that, that God gives David that, that salvation is going to come through your line. And, and then we also have, for instance, in Isaiah 11.1, 1, like we read before, a branch from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was... David's dad, so a branch from the stump. So this phrase, son of David, means that these two men, these two blind men, saw that Jesus was the Messiah. I'm using that phrase cleverly. I want you to think about that. They understand. They see. They know. Even though they can't see, they're blind. They know. They know that he is the son of David, that, and they're pleading with him, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. You, the Christ, the king. Those two facts that they know they have to follow him and that they know that he can heal them and that he is the son of David... Those are two facts. I know I said three things. But the first fact is that they, they, they know he's the son of David. The second is that they, they know he is able. Those two facts put together show that they have both right knowledge and a right attitude toward Jesus. They, they truly believed him. They really believed him. They believed he was the Christ. They really, they really knew this. They had faith in him, right? Jesus says, do you believe that I, that I can do this? Do you trust me? Do you trust me that I can do this? Yes, Lord. So they trusted. They believed. They wanted this, this Savior to deliver them specifically. And they knew he was able to do it. And just thinking about that, that almost like it's a metaphor, these two blind men chasing, following after him, trying to keep up with him, oftentimes, frankly, that feels like the way faith is for us today. Like we're blind men knowing that this, this Jesus is able to, to do as he says, almost like he's invisible. And this is exactly how sinners approach him today, coming to him, knowing, knowing, yes, you can deliver us. But that metaphor is not the point of the text. I just think it's interesting. If I had a story that was going to explain the way that I felt sometimes in my faith, it's like being a blind man, a blind man chasing after Jesus, hoping he turns around and talks to me. So these two men, they recognize that there's something wrong in them. It's their blindness. And that only Jesus can deliver them from that taint of sin, the, the stench of the fall that was wrought, that was worked in by man across all creation. They know, they know that they should be able to see, but they can't. And they know that Jesus can let them see. So they're chasing after him. Have mercy on us, son of David. Now in verse 28, uh, we read that, that when he entered the house, so Jesus comes to this house, presumably this is Peter's house, because that's where he'd set up home base in Capernaum, was, was Peter's house. So we can assume that, that Jesus goes into Peter's house and the blind men follow him in. They follow him in and they, they come up to him. And they don't, they don't come saying, hey, can you make us see? 
they've been shouting this whole time, have mercy on a son of David. But, but Jesus actually says to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they respond, yes. So it's worth mentioning that Jesus didn't do this healing publicly, right? He could have turned around at any time and just turned around and said, yes, you know, or even asked the question, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Instead, he let them follow him into this, this private domain, this less public space. Now, there's been some pretty big healings in Peter's house. For instance, the dude lowered through the roof. Uh, so, I mean, everybody knows. Everybody knows about Jesus. Everybody knows he's able to do these miraculous things, right? But Jesus still, with these two, decides to, for whatever reason, do it privately. So the only people that probably saw this were maybe a crowd that had followed or, or Jesus' apostles, but it was a private thing. Now, with these two guys, I mean, they're, they're afflicted, right? We don't, we don't know if they were born blind or if they became blind. But we know that they were blind. <laughs> and and uh, when, when it comes to this question, right, uh, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Why, why would Jesus ask that? Is it because he wasn't sure of their faith? No. No, it wasn't because he wasn't sure. Was it because they needed enough faith in order for Jesus to heal them? No, again, that's not the case. But a principle we can derive from when Jesus asked this question, he asked it several times with multiple people, do you believe that I'm able to do what you think I can do? Do you believe? Do you believe? Oftentimes, the Lord in our own afflictions will Will, will test us, not make us doubt, not make us like, you know, pause and, well, maybe I am following the wrong God. But what, what the Lord does is he causes us to stop and wonder about the fundamentals, the basics. Do you really believe? Do you really believe? And that's, that's what he's doing here. He's making them stop and he's making them examine their own, their, their own selves, their own faith, their own trust. He's not saying, hey, he's not going to stop and say, you know, you say you do, but you're lying to me, so uh, go away. That's not what Jesus does. He's also not telling them, you know what, I'd love to heal you, but you got to believe more. Got to have more belief. Uh, otherwise, I can't do this. No, he's making them question their own selves. And Jesus rewards their faith. We'll get there. But, but, but this happens to us, too. When we're, when we're in maybe a seemingly undeliverable situation, when we're afflicted, when we've just got troubles falling on us. You know that feeling when the weight, the weight of all the worldly struggles that you're going through takes you to your knees, has you fall flat on your face? Maybe you have a health crisis, something, something where you are just overcome. And then the Lord gently asks, do you believe that I'm able to provide for you? Do you believe that I'm able to get you through this? Do you believe that I'm going to deliver you one day? That's what he's doing. He's, taking him, he's making him really question that fundamental, that basic thing. Do you really believe that I'm able to do this? And also notice that he's not trying to speak at length, right? So what is your, uh, your, your proper, or what, what is your actual illness. You say you're blind. You can't see. Can you see a little? Can you see this? 
Like, we're not told that Jesus is holding up, you know, better one or two, right? This isn't, he's not, he's not an optometrist, right? I almost, almost said ophthalmologist, but that would be wrong. Anyway, he's not, he's not, he's not an eyeglass dude, right? He's not, he's not saying like, okay, is it okay yet? Is it okay yet? Is it okay yet? He's, he's, he knows their need. He knows what's wrong. He knows how to help them. He's not laboring on, he's not even like pulling their leg, right? Just asking the question, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you really trust? And it's when we are in those moments where we're, we're, we're just grateful, maybe we've been pulled to our knees in prayer and we're coming before the Lord uh, and we just, we have nothing else to bring when he, he gives us that shadow of a question, right? Do you believe? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? So there will be relief for everyone that believes in the Lord, that trusts on him. There will be relief. As, as Paul put it uh, in Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We're all going to be, anybody who trusts in the Lord is one day going to be relieved. And our faith is going to be made sight. Which in verse 29, that's exactly what happens with these, these two guys. In verse 29, in the beginning of verse 30, then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you, and their eyes were opened. So the Lord touches their eyes. He approves their faith. He confirms that their seeking him was the right thing to do. And their eyes were opened. Now, blindness, by the way, was common in that day. It was actually super common. You think about it, if you live in a desert with lots of wind, you've got the sand beating in your eyes. It's not like they can throw on some goggles or something at that time period. So you would, you would lose, uh, people would lose sight commonly. And we know that people that would go blind would congregate together with people who were born blind. It wasn't really good hygiene, so children were born blind all, blind all the time. Um, happens even today where, where certain transmitted diseases cause blindness in children. But in this time, it, it, was, it was pretty common. So again, we don't know if these guys were born blind or if they became blind. But the Lord touches their eyes, rewards their trust in him, and their faith is made real. According to your faith, be it done to you. Because you trust me, would be a way to paraphrase that. Because you trust that I'm able to do this, I will do it for you. And what do they do, right? They're filled with joy. What would you do? Thanks, Jesus. Do you walk off? <laughs> no. If you are blind and given sight, you are happy right? You are no longer a worthless member of society relegated to sitting on mats and shouting for, for coins to be thrown at you just so people could shut you up. You're, 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 now you're somebody that can maybe contribute. You can get a job. You can, you can work for things. You can have a family. You can, th this, is, this is incredible, right? These people are filled with joy, and so much joy. Truly, this man was Exactly as they thought, the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed, the promised one, the redeemer, the savior, Jesus, Jesus right here. This Jesus was the man that Israel had been waiting for for centuries, thousands of years. They've been waiting for this to be fixed, and it happened right in front of them, 
wow. And now they see him. They see this man. They heard about him. They trusted him. And they see him. And they know that these stories are true. That the lame walk, that demons are being cast out. That now the blind see. Jesus was righting the wrongs of sin right in front of them. Oh, how great the joy of a sinner set free and a blind man given sight. That joy turns to zeal, right? I want everybody to know, oh my goodness, this Jesus, he's the real deal, man. This guy's the whole shebang. And when you think about zealousness, I mean, you probably think in terms of, of bad things. We think of zealots as maybe fanatic soldiers. But zeal, that, that zeal is what transforms a life. You go from, from, from uh, the, the sinner to, to being saved, and now you're like, I want everybody to know. <laughs> I want everybody to know about this. This is crazy. This is crazy. I, I, I was a sinner, and now I have the sense of salvation. In terms of these two guys, I was blind, and now I see physically, really, right here. They were formerly condemned, and now they're set free. But what happens when that zeal's not controllable? What happens when that zeal has the zeal for the truth makes somebody sin? Have you ever thought about that? Zeal for the truth resulting in sin? And that's what we see in the rest of this. And that, this is where I want us to really draw the point of this, of this text, really hit on the application. Because when we read the rest of verse 30 and then verse 31, we see zeal that becomes sin. So verse 30, the rest of 30 and 31. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. How terrible, friends, is uncontrollable zeal that brings about a lack of commitment to the commandments of the Lord. Jesus was so clear, so clear, don't tell anybody about it. So clear, sternly. That word, that word is very, very important when we read this text because it's not like they missed it. It's not like they were jumping up for joy and they missed what Jesus said. Instead, they heard it. Jesus said it. Everybody else knows that he said it really seriously. And this is what these men did in their zeal for the truth. They were, they were blind and now they see. They were happy about it and, and they didn't listen. They spread his fame through all that district. So just to make it a little more clear, zeal without obedience is dangerous. Now, you might wonder, why, why is that a bad thing? They went and told people about Jesus, right? Like, that's a good thing. If, if, if somebody who did not know the Lord came to know the Lord, one of the first things we, we tell them is, hey, go tell your friends about Jesus. So how can it be bad? How can it be bad that, that, uh, that the, these guys went and told people? Why would Jesus, the Lord of glory, this promised one, this Christ, this Messiah, tell these two men to keep quiet? Why? I mean, everybody's going to understand, right? These guys were sitting on the mat, and they, you know, maybe their eyes were glazed over, maybe they had cataracts, whatever it was. 
They were sitting now, and now they're looking for a job. <laughs> and people are going to see it. So why would Jesus say, don't tell anyone, keep it quiet? Well, it's not the first time or the only time that Jesus does this, right? Uh, if you've read the Gospels, you've read Mark chapter 8, Peter affirms that Jesus is the Christ, actually very specifically uh, Jesus asked him, uh, what, you know, who do, who do people say that I am? So, well, people say you're John the Baptist. And, blah, blah, blah. and, then, and then he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you guys say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And what does Jesus do in Mark 8.30? Jesus strictly charges the apostles that, uh, that they tell no one about him. And in the same instance, in Luke 9, it's the exact same moment in two Gospels, uh, Luke also records that Jesus added, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So don't tell anyone, because these things have to happen. So to answer the question of why Jesus told these men to remain silent about what he'd done, it would seem that Jesus wanted, the, wanted them to remain quiet so that so that these things would come to pass, right? Don't screw this up for me. Is that what happened? Could, can God's plans be thwarted? No. No, they cannot. So the, the question kind of hangs, and I want it to hang, because I, 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 that's, that's kind of the way it is in life. God tells us to do something, and we say, why, God? And God's answer that famous parental answer, because, <laughs> right? You heard that one, right? Yeah, why mom? Because. <laughs> so I wanted to kind of hang there, but in this, in this instance, their lack of obedience did not thwart Jesus's plan to be rejected or anything. Uh, really, really, it seems like Jesus wanted his fame spread after the resurrection, which kind of makes sense. Uh, that, that way people were like, wow, he healed me and he raised from the dead. What? But, but why did he tell them to remain silent? Because. Sometimes we don't get an answer for why the Lord wants us to do something. Sometimes, sometimes when we're reading the Old Testament, uh, or even the New Testament, and we're like, why? Like, I mean, y'all been to church. You all have someone in church that you're like, I wish that person would just like not be there. That would be great. That's all happened to every single person. Or you've been in a class where you're like, why did I get stuck with that student that has bothered me for 16 years? Or you sit there and you're like, I'm a new student and I hate the fact that that guy's still here. But we, we all wonder, why are, why are we around these people? And yet, you know what God says in his word for uh, us to do with brothers and sisters in the church? We're, we're to love them. We're to love them and cherish them and, 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 and help them and, and, and train them. So that's just one instance, right? What about all the other commandments of the Lord? I mean, I could do this, right? I could just turn to a random thing and read a command, and there might be some of you who would go, well, why is that important? And ultimately, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because when God tells us to do something, it's actually for our benefit, for his glory, 
Now, I'm not going to say that there's many of those that sit there hanging. <laughs> Most of the time, especially with Paul, if you read the epistles with Paul, Paul says, uh, main point, um, evidence, 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 therefore, and then moves on to another point. He's super linear, super logical. And usually he tells you the reasons that he says to do particular things. There's not many of those. But it's not our job to judge why Jesus tells people to do something or not. And in this case, he tells these two blind men, don't tell anybody about this. And they disobey. The application we should derive from this text is to repent from being like these men, where we value zealousness over the command of the Lord. Where does that work specifically in your life? I don't know. I don't know. But I can guarantee that's been a point in your life. At some point, you've allowed your zeal for the truth, your zeal for reality, your, your fervor, your desire for this truthful thing that you've maybe stomped on someone to make sure it happened, or maybe you've, you've, you've wrestled someone into submission when you, when you shouldn't have. You, you've done something. You've done something where God has said, hey, don't do this, and then you did it anyway. And we've all heard the phrase, right? You can do, uh, there are wrong ways to say the right thing. <laughs> there, there, there's, you might be right, right? Uh, but you do it, you go about it the wrong way. Somewhere in your life that has happened and somewhere you need to repent, you need to feel the conviction of that sin, you need to maybe reconcile, you need to maybe say I'm sorry to someone. But here we have a very clear picture. Jesus says, don't do this, and then they do it. When has that happened to you? Where Jesus says, don't do this, and you turn right around and do exactly the opposite of what he says. So my pastoral announcement of application, right? My, my friendly, you know, hey, I'm just here. I'm a sinner saved by grace like everybody else. I'm not super holy. Angels don't sing when I walk into the room. Um, usually children scream when I walk into the room. But, but, but there is somewhere that you know this is true. So my application for you is wrestle in prayer over that. Be brought to your knees. Even better, wrestle in prayer uh, in God's word over that one. Find Jesus' commands, feel the conviction of sin, and, and be brought to repentance. I don't know if she thinks she's sneaking. or Anyway, uh, <laughs> so, so when you are so zealous for the truth that you are in sin... Even if you're truthful, even if you're doing the right thing, it's still sin. I can guarantee that we're all doing it. Uh, we're all sinners saved by grace, not merit. It's not like you've been knocked down a few Jesus points for doing this, right? Um, in fact, I would say that we're saved despite our sinfulness. But wherever your zealousness for the truth, your fervency for the, for the right thing has caused you to be disobedient to the Lord, find it. Pray about it. Repent. 
let your pride be broken in light of this text. Because the reality is that I'm not really preaching so much to you. I'm actually preaching to myself. I know I have these moments, and God has been so gracious to give them to me. Um, gosh, I could give you an example just even last night. But, uh, but my own son reminded me that I had to say I'm sorry. My three-year-old boy was like, Daddy, you should say you're sorry. And I'm like, you're right. <laughs> um, so I know that there are times when I've done the right thing in the wrong way, that I've sinned against, against a, a, a brother or sister in the Lord. I've sinned against God, ultimately, by disobeying him. And so I pray that he'll do the exact same for you. So let's pray and sing our last song. God, I am so grateful that you came and you gave these miraculous signs of who you were and you proved over and again that you were the, the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ who was to come, who, who is reconciling and will reconcile this whole world. I thank you for that. But I pray that we would take that truth and we would deal with it graciously, and we would take our zealousness and have it conformed to obedience. God, convict us. Convict us of our sin, and may we feel the weight of that conviction and recognize that it's paid for by you, and that only through you can it be made right, can it be atoned. So God, give us the, the grace of reconciliation for those we've wronged. Give us the, the strength to say we're sorry. But most of all, Lord, may we listen and obey. And may our zeal be tempered with obedience to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Glorify the Lord with zeal tempered through obedience this week, friends. Go in peace.